Hey, what's going on, champs? I'm Erin Deliosa. Welcome to an Immigrant's Life podcast, my podcast about immigrants and immigration and everything in between. Thank you for listening and downloading the show, and thank you for supporting my dad. We are one week away from an Immigrant's Life anniversary, and we have an amazing guest in store for you, so stay tuned for that. For extra content of an Immigrant's Life, and if you want to reach out, you can check me out on Facebook and Instagram at An Immigrant's Life. Listen to the podcast on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to your podcast. Oh, and also, we are now also available on Amazon Music. And with that, let's talk about the episode. I love this episode because it helped me reconnect with a long-lost friend. He was one of my first friends here in Canada. We used to hang out a lot, and I never knew that he was homeless at that time, as you will hear in, in my shock reaction when he revealed it to me. If you want some real inspiration, you better listen closely. So, without further ado, let's get into the show. Isa, dalawa, tatlo. Today, my guest is a long-lost friend of mine, but now he is back, and I'm grateful for that. He's a gamer, a race car driver, and a great family man. He's as tenacious as a tiger and as intelligent as an elephant. Coming from Toronto by way of the island of Dharma, everyone please welcome Johnny Andrew. Wow, what an introduction. <laughs> Thank you. I, I like to think that's my signature for my podcast. It's pretty good. Thank you. I appreciate that. So how are you doing, my man? I'm pretty good. Thank you for having me on this broadcast. It's a real honor to be here. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. It's again, this is a, a pleasure to have you. And I'm really, this is one reason I like doing this podcast and I'm grateful for this podcast is there's a lot of people I haven't spoken in years. And this podcast gives me a reason to reach out and say, Hey, you know what, dude, let's, let's be friends again. Not that we were never friends, but you know what I mean, right? That's right. Life keeps you busy and then, uh, you know, uh, you, you have a different door that you open up and it branches out to a different destiny. And destinies are not always shared with other people. It's your own. So the fact that we can connect when we can connect, it's, it's always awesome. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I agree with that. So let's get into it. This is the one thing you told me. It was fascinating. You said you love racing on the weekends. And what kind of car do you drive when you race? Um, well, it's not mostly on the weekends. It's, uh, it's every summer. Uh, there's open track days. Um, uh, there's three tracks that are out there in, in, in Ontario. So the two that I go to, it's called Cayuga and Shannonville. Mm. Um, and the car that I drive for fun, well, the, the more current one is the C63 AMG uh, made by Mercedes-Benz. Uh, it's my first rear wheel vehicle that I'm driving on the track. So I'm having a, a lot of fun. Oh, man, you're crazy, man. How fast have you ever ridden? Um, maybe 180, 190. That's awesome, man. But did you always have an affinity to cars? Um, I did. Ever since I was a little kid, um, I remember one of the kids at school had one and he had a duplicate. So he gave me the duplicate and then I went home and I showed my, um, my parents. I'm like, Hey, can you get me more cars like this? 
uh, until I can drive a real one. And then, you know, they, they giggled and they said, sure. And then um, instead of getting me like a Lamborghini or Ferrari, they got me like little Toyota Corollas or a Honda <laughs> Civic. <laughs> I mean, nothing wrong with that. It's just um, I didn't think that early in my life I wanted to go into a fuel-efficient vehicle. I wanted something <laughs> like a daredevil. <laughs> That's funny, man. And like I mentioned earlier, you are Sri Lankan descent, right? That's right. Were you born in Canada? Uh, no. Um, I actually wasn't born in Sri Lanka either. I was actually born outside as a souvenir to my parents. I was actually born in uh, in uh, Switzerland. But my parents are, uh, they're from uh, the northern part of Sri Lanka, from a Jephna district uh, in a city called uh, Niliadi. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, yeah, they moved out of that country, you know, before I was born. I think they left in 84, and then I was born in 86. You were born in Switzerland. Did they live there? Uh, just for a few years, not long. I think I was there up until I was like eight, eight and a half. The original plan was for my parents to, because um, they had to take two planes, but they came as refugees to escape the war from back home. Mm-hmm. So I think Switzerland was just like a mid-stop, but then they ended up staying, and I think there was complication as well at the time. So, yeah, we stayed there for a few years before making our way to Canada. But Canada was really the final destination? That's right. Okay, and they got stuck there in Switzerland for eight years, so I'm pretty sure they work and live there. They did. That's right. My mom the- worked at a grocery store with uh, very little uh, knowledge of the native tongue in that country. Uh, my father did pretty well. He, um, even before he left Sri Lanka, he was actually traveling all, all around Europe. Oh, okay. Uh, your last name is not a typical Sri Lankan last name. That's correct. My last name is Andrew. And uh, in our culture, uh, the last name becomes uh, your father's first name. So, mm-hmm. but Andrew is actually my father's father's first name. So mm-hmm. my grandfather. Um, so to keep the tradition alive, I stuck with the last name Andrew and went in that direction. So even my kids, their last names are Andrew as well, trying to honor my grandfather mm. and to keep a, a new tradition in the household. That's that's awesome. But but Andrew is also not a Sri Lankan name. No, it's not. There's a lot of Buddhists and Hindus uh, that are in Sri Lanka. My uh, ancestors were actually uh, Roman Catholic, mm. and they were, I think it's as early as the 14th century uh, where our bloodline turned Roman Catholic because of the Portuguese empire when they came and they colonized uh, the country. Wow, that's fascinating, man. So let's get back to your immigration story. So you were eight when the whole family moved to Canada. Where did you guys settle? Um, We came to uh, Montreal. That was our first uh, city that we came and landed in Canada. And you went to school in Montreal? Um, 
I actually was going to school in Cornwall and my parents, my mother stayed in Montreal. How does that work? Well, I hate to say this, but, um, and not that I have anything against uh, the Quebecois, but any, and by any means, but I never liked the language French. I was found it very difficult uh, to learn. Um, and I struggled with French uh, for a very long time. I knew how to speak it, like I knew how to communicate, but you can tell I'm not French blooded when I speak. Just the looks of you, th th I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, the, not pointing out the obvious. So my parents um, so decided to send me to Cornwall where a family friend uh, resided. And um, I did uh, most of my elementary school in Cornwall. So you did all your grade school in Cornwall? Yeah, from grade five to... I think eight, because oh, okay. they, they made me skip grade four. So I went straight to, from grade three, I went straight to grade five. Oh, okay. All right, grade five. And then you must be missing your parents then. Uh, I mean, uh, I miss the uh, Mother's Day and Father's Day, but we always made the effort to see each other during those important holidays. So they would come pick me up, uh, or I would take the bus and go see them. At that age? Well, taking the bus, I don't mean like Greyhound or, or you know, anything that, uh, like a public transportation that we are well accustomed to. But uh, in our community, in the Tamil community, we actually have these like, um, uh, these large vans that uh, you can go into and you, and you pay the driver. It's actually a small business, but privately run. And they'll make sure that you're, they safeguard you until the, your destination. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's awesome. Yeah. That still happens right now, today? Um, I believe so. I mean, I haven't taken these in a long time, but it's just because um, our, our Tamil community back then, we were very, very uh, small in population, and we didn't have an opportunity to grow and um you know, really become part of the economical uh, system. Uh, so what we did was we helped each other as a, as a community. So anything when it comes to food or, uh, or clothing or anything like that, uh, we know someone that works at a factory that can get those for cheap, and then we bought it off of them. So we basically bought it in bulk. Kind of like what Costco is today, right? But illegally. But, <laughs> but we did it back then. Uh, and, it, you know, it's just to support each other and just to get by. Which is a great, is a great thing, community. Mm -hmm. And so you finished your grade school in Cornwall. By the way, for the listeners, Cornwall is about, what, like an hour or two hours from Montreal? It's about an hour away. So, so you went to finish grade school. You went high school in Quebec that's right okay and how's that um it was good because this is about the time when my parents got their uh, Canadian citizenship so I automatically uh, became a Canadian citizen because uh because I was a minor and it allowed me to you know uh, now live with my parents uh, go to school there um being a minority though uh, there was there I had my own kind of um, insecurities and uh, 
trials and tribulations that I had to deal with. But um, apart from that, just being with my parents, uh, that gave me some support back then. Mm. Yeah, for especially for a young, growing man like you. Uh, the the uh, female in my community had it worse because with the boys, you you know, the parents didn't worry so much when the boys went to school, mm. but with the girls, you don't know, you don't know what happens. So some parents actually have to change their, their working schedules to make sure that they could either get them picked up or uh, drop them off to school. Yeah. Because of con- they're very conservative, I'm assuming. That's right. Wow. That's, that's rough. And well, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Um, it's just a culture shock for my people coming from a country where, um, you know, we lived in villages to, you know, where there's buildings that are like, you can't even reach the roof. Like, like it was back home. Um, you know, Sri Lankan people that I've met, uh, they all have the same kind of mentality, which is, you know, where they, they, they're into that culture shock. So everything is new to them. Uh, they're too scared to try anything out because of the fear. What if I don't do it properly? Then others will make fun of me, right? I'll give you an example of what I had to go through. So in my culture, the culture is really strong with our people. So one of the things that we do is when it's lunchtime or dinner time and you're with people, you share your food and you eat with everybody. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I always try and do it with my friends or classmates. And some people look at me and say, we're not that close. <laughs> right? Yeah, I would get insulted. I'm like, why doesn't he like my food or something? Right? But then it's, that's what I mean about the culture shock. Here, you bring your own lunch, you eat your own lunch. You don't share your lunch with anybody. When you go out with a friend, uh, you are expected to pay for your own meal, right? Mm-hmm. In my culture, it's not like that. When we tell you to come hang out with us, don't worry about the money. We're, we're going to help each other. Like We're here to spend that quality time with each other, right? So we took a big offense when people didn't want to uh, uh, collaborate with us because we thought that they didn't like us because of the way that we dressed or the food that we ate. And, um, you know, when you were a kid, yes, that is a case. That's what other kids were thinking. But for the older audience, that wasn't the case. Mm -hmm. It's more like um, you have to build that relationship with them before they're willing to come into your circle. Mm. And, you know, what's uh, puzzling is that a lot of uh, the immigrants or refugees that come here from third world countries, we automatically now i was guilty of this too we automatically just assume that those people are racist Mm. but in fact it's not racist it's just your culture was too strong and you're forcing your culture onto other people and you know as much as we are in a culture shock you know if they are not aware of our culture you know we're shocking them as Mm -hmm. well i love that so it's it goes both ways wow man i never look at that way no, no, a lot of people haven't. I like myself. I didn't look at that way. You know how many innocent people that I grew up calling them racist, mm-hmm. uh, not to their face, but behind their back, because I thought they were racist. Mm-hmm. And then when I got older, I realized no, they're not racist. They're just busy, mm-hmm. and I'm getting in their, I'm getting in their way. I'm getting, you know, in between them and their destiny, whatever that 
destiny is for that day for them. Wow. Yeah, you're so right. Like, they're not racist. They're your culture shock. And as well, they are culture shocked by your culture. Mm-hmm. And then there's a misunderstanding. And you never had a moment to like have a sit down and say, hey, by the way, this is what we do. How about you guys? And because of that, there's a disconnect, miscommunication. You know what happens when there's miscommunication? Yeah, misunderstanding starts to form. Exactly. I want to ask you, did you ever feel unwelcome or an outsider in Montreal or in Cornwall? Um, both. Uh, in Cornwall, I was young, um, you know, elementary lifestyle. So mm-hmm. we don't, uh, you know, children that age don't necessarily think too deep about stuff. But we do know as children that if we're not welcomed. Uh, so I got a lot of uh, unwelcoming um, presence when I went to, uh, you know, the kid, the other kids' homes. Now, at school, I didn't feel that much because uh, when it's recess time and everybody goes and plays, uh, whether it's tag or soccer, uh, you know, we are all mingling together. The only time I felt the unwelcomeness is, let's say I made a really good friend in class and, uh, you know, I, we decided together that, hey, why don't you come to my house or they invite me to their house. So when I go, like I couldn't invite people to my house because I lived with a relative. So I would go to their house instead and, you know, uh, their parents wouldn't know what to feed me or, or what to do with me. Right, like I was like a stray um, cat or dog that the, their son picked up, you know, from the streets. Hmm. So, you know, and, and there's some that made me feel really welcome, but uh, most of my experiences, that's how I remembered. In um, in Montreal, I or in Quebec, I felt um, I felt something similar, but I've also experienced racism. Uh, more over there only because I was older. I was a teenager. So I felt like I was an adult, even though I wasn't a real adult, mm-hmm. but going through my adolescence. Mm-hmm. So I thought I was better than most people. I smarter than most people. But when I felt the disconnect, not just in culture, but the fact that they don't want to spend time with me, I said to myself, you know what? You're missing out on me. So that's fine. But then I disconnected from everybody. So even mm-hmm. people who don't deserve for me to be disconnected with them, I was disconnected with everybody. Mm-hmm. And um, my whole high school life was like that. But that's also because um, in the middle of my high school life, up until the end, I was going through something that the other kids weren't going through that's not considered normal. And, um, you know, it just made it easier for me not to talk about it. Because if I talked about it, then I would alienate myself to the uh, to the other children or sorry to the other teenagers in the, in that school can, can you talk about what was you were going through then um so my um so when i kept saying my parents came here my parents came here uh it actually wasn't my parents that came here together my mother and father actually separated uh, before we came to canada That was one of the reasons why my mother couldn't leave uh, Switzerland as early as she could because my biological father just said, uh, if I send you there, you're going to take my kids with me. So I'm not going to do that. 
And all of my mom's brother, sister, and even her uh, parents, they all lived in Canada. That's why we stayed in Switzerland, uh, or my mom felt like she overstayed in Switzerland longer than she had to. Um, she felt like she married the, the wrong person. Um, and at one point in her life, she was thinking, you know what, now that I'm married, I have no choice but to stay here. So she found love again in Canada after she divorced my biological father. So um, yeah, after that separation, uh, she got the custody over, uh, you know, my brother and myself. And she took us uh, with them, with her quickly to Canada, where she could be reunited with her brothers, well, with her siblings and her parents. And um, in my culture, being divorced is a very big taboo. You don't do that. Um, and my mother felt that she was shunned out by her own uh, blood relatives. So she had nobody. And she tried her best to be a single mother and raise uh, two boys by herself. And uh, she couldn't, uh, you know. And then there was this guy that she met where, uh, you know, they got along really well. They had very strong chemistry. And that's my stepfather. She married him. But he didn't like me too much uh, because he felt, embarrassed now you gotta understand the culture too right a woman never gets divorced let alone a woman getting remarried mm -hmm. wow such a big thing my stepfather's family members all they all told him don't marry her she's already been married you should marry someone else who's never been married before it's only fair to you and not only that if you do marry her she has two children one of them is young enough. You can say that's your own child. Oh, my God. But the other child is older, right? Because my mom and my stepfather, they're very young. Um, for example, 30 years old, you got a 10-year-old son. And everybody that knows my stepfather knows that he just recently got married. It would feel weird that, you know, but she has uh, 10 years. You can't even pass by saying he's my kid. Because where have you hidden him, right? Mm. That's what his friends and family would say. So what happened was he tried to make me basically run away from home. He forced what? me kind of out so that I couldn't stay with, with them, right? Because that's his family now. and I'm How the, old were you then? Um, I was 14. And he was kicking you out? That's right. So did he, did he verbally said it? Uh, yes, he did. He verbally said that, uh, you know, in front of uh, my mother and I. And uh, at one point, I didn't want to leave because he would kick me out. And a few days later, my mom would feel bad. So she would take me back in. She's like, you know what? I used to have a room upstairs in the, you know, second floor where all the other bedrooms were. But now she's like, you know what? You stay in the basement now and just stay hidden. Don't let him find out. What are you? Which is kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right. And um, whenever he finds out, he would get in a, you know, in a big fit. And I think the last time that I remember where he kicked me out, he actually chased me with a with a butcher knife. So I was like, you know what? I'm not gonna go back to this home where this guy really doesn't want me there. Now I don't. Back then, I didn't really blame him. 
because I understood the culture. I understood why she was embarrassed to have me around. The fact that he was able to keep my brother was a blessing, right? Mm -hmm. So I said, you know what? I'll, I'll take it for the team, you know, the team brother. And um, if my brother is safe, that's all that matters. I'll just find my own ways to survive. And that's kind of where I was kind of on my own. Hmm. And uh, that's why when I was in high school, I, I continued to stay distant because I don't want people to find out that I was homeless or that I ran away from home. So I just kept the same uh, persona in school. And, you know, I'm kind of glad that I was this lone wolf because no one got into my business. No one pried, right? No one cared enough to pry into it because the culture was different, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's not a bunch of Sri Lankan people. And when Sri Lankan kids did come to that school, because there was me and one other kid that were Tamil Sri Lankan. And after us, more started to come and they would try and talk to us and I would avoid them. I would try and pretend to be like, um, like a Canadian cultured child. So that, so they, in their minds, these Tamil kids would think, Oh, he's a coconut, mm. you know? And that made it easier for me because in my culture, if they found out that I was like, I ran away, they would, they would try and bring me in and I didn't want to be a burden to anybody. Mm. So that's, uh, that's the lifestyle I grew up in, in high school. Wow, bro. What, so where were you staying then when you were homeless? <laughs> um, oh man, this brings so many bad memories. But now that I think about it, it's like, I can't even believe it myself that I went through it. But uh, in, in the summertime, um, you know, nighttime does get really cold, even in summer, but I kind of built a tolerance to a, you know, a certain kind of coldness. And it doesn't matter if it's the school park or, you know, the park that's in a, like near a neighborhood, I would sleep on the bench. Right? What the fuck, dude? Yeah, this is during the summertime. In the wintertime, um, you know, I would always try and see if I can sneak into a, like an apartment building. You know, when someone opens a door to mm -hmm. get in or get out, well, mm -hmm. I would try and sneak in, but I can't like sleep on the hallway. So I would try and see if I can get to the basement if it's accessible. And the safest spot that I found was where the uh, garbage compactor room was. <laughs> I would sleep. Yeah. I mean, it would smell, but, you know, I would go behind this compactor so no one would find me. And I would just camp over there. And not to lose my spot, so I would try and take whatever stuff I had with me, like an extra jacket or mm -hmm. uh, a made-up pillow. And by, by made-up pillow, it's um, I found this old uh, TV box where they had that styrofoam on the inside. Mm -hmm. I took that and I put some old clothing that I had, wrapped it together, and that was my pillow. So I would make sure I take that those belongings of mine and bring it somewhere else. So that no one would find the compactor as my safe zone. Wow. That's nuts. And how about food? Um, I'm embarrassed to say this, but it's, I, I would steal at a grocery store. I would never steal from another person because I understand, I understood the value of money mm. when I was that young. Uh, 
um, and the hardship that people have to go through in order to earn uh, for their living. But at a, at a business, at a like a convenience store or a grocery, it's a business. I understood that you have to take a loss, uh, you know, every month. So I would take uh, one sandwich a day. You know, there's a pre-made sandwiches that would be in a convenience store or uh, at a grocery store. I would just take one, one sandwich and that's it. One time I got greedy, I took one and I took a chocolate milk box. I remember that. Mm. And that's the day I got caught. Mm. Uh, so I got caught twice uh, in the four years that I was living in the streets like that. Four first, years, you're outside, you're homeless. Yeah, from 14 till uh, the day I turned 18. Holy fuck, man. <laughs> I can't believe it uh, myself because, um, you know, it's a young age. But back then, your mind kind of changes. It, like you have this instinct in every person has this. It's like a switch that comes on when it's time to survive. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter how sheltered I was, how much little I knew of the first world, uh, you know, country and all these technologies and stuff. Once that switch turned on, it was time to survive. Didn't matter what it was, whatever uh, was necessary, I, I did it. But to a moral cause. So I wouldn't do anything immoral in order to survive. I would always try and find the moral way to survive. Of course. So let's get back. You got caught. What happened? So I got caught. And um, not that this particular information matters, but this uh, store manager was a, uh, was a black guy. And he, he looked at me and it's, he felt more, like he can connect with me because we're both minorities. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the reason I got caught is because I was with another fellow and I wanted, I showed, because he didn't believe that I lived in the street as well back then. And I think he was two years or three years younger than me. So I tried to show him because he wanted to run away from home as well. Like he wanted to run away because his parents, uh, they don't give him the affection that he wants at home. Mm -hmm. And I basically tried to tell him, don't take this path because you're going to have to live like me. And he's like, yeah, but you don't look like you live that harsh. And I said, I'll show you what I do for a living. And that's when I went to the store and decided to show him how I sold. And that's, and we both got caught. Right. And that's because I want to take that chocolate milk just to kind of show him, Hey, I can also steal this and this <laughs> together. Right? You got greedy, homie. I, I got greedy and that's what got me in. So he, we were both in the office uh, and the black general store manager was there. Um, he was also, he was a mulatto. Uh, so he was like half white, half uh, black. Mm. So this store manager really could connect with us. And he just, he's like, what are you guys, what are you kids doing? So I kind of told him the story. Mm. I had no idea he was going to believe me, but I figured I might as well just tell the truth and see where it takes me. Right. So he gave us a phone and he said, I want you both to call your parents. So the, the kid calls his parents. His parents were worried sick because he was gone for a few hours, I believe. Mm. And, uh, you know, they came right away. Uh, they picked him up. And um, he's like, aren't you going to call your parents? And, he, you know, he, he asked me at least four or five times. 
And I kept, I kept looking at him. I'm like, no, I, I don't want to, right? And um, I think it was the look maybe I had on my own face that he was able to see when that child, that kid that I was with, when he went and hugged his parents and his parents hugged him. I think, I mean, I think I was crying on the inside, but on the outside, I was doing my best not to show it, right? Because I can't show my weaknesses in that state in survival mode. But the store manager was able to sense something, right? Something was off. And then um, he was basically like, you know, if, if you don't want to call your parents, where are you going to stay? What are you going to do? So I kind of told him, I don't need my, like, I don't need parents. I live on my own. And he's like, so you got to steal food to live on your own. I'm like, well, until I get a proper job, yeah, I have to. And then he just, he felt really bad. So he put the, the sandwich and the chocolate milk in a plastic bag. And he just puts it in my hand. And it's like, I didn't see anything. But at the same time, I didn't want to see you come back here. And then he let me go. Like he didn't call the police or anything like that. What a nice guy. During this time, this is when we met each other, right? Uh, we met slightly after this, um, after this incident. Because um, back then, the only job that I was able to get where I can fake an address and they don't check is like uh, fast food restaurants. Mm. There was this particular Burger King that I worked for where they only gave me a three-hour shift, Monday to Friday. From 11 to 2 o'clock. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't know if they knew I was in the streets or, or what it was, but they wouldn't give me more hours. Like, like no matter how much I begged, they wouldn't give it to me for the life of me. Mm -hmm. So I left that place and I got my, my job at the um, fast food chain. And I think that's where we met. And you were homeless still then? I was um, homeless, but there was a kid that worked with us back then. Um, I'm not going to say his real name, but for the purpose of this conversation, let's just call him Blake. Mm -hmm. So Blake let me stay at his house, uh, not every single day, but now and then. Why the right? fuck so his did mom, you tell me this? I would have let you stay at my place. Like I said, I was like the lone wolf. I didn't want to get anybody involved. But during that time, my aunt also found out, my mom's younger sister, that I was living like this. Mm -hmm. And um, I think she found out because someone that she knows uh, has a kid who, who we went to, I think, I, I don't know if it's the same school or we did some sort of activity together. Okay. And he was a Sri Lankan Tamil too. So he went and told his parents, you know, I think he living on his own like he lives in the streets so she had told my aunt and then my aunt uh met up with me one time like mm -hmm. like outside and said hey come over here take your ass in the house <laughs> <laughs> and you did and i did that's amazing so your aunt took you in and you were going through high school then then you graduate did you graduate high school actually at this point I'm, I was already finished high school. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, which is, um, I think it's a year. 
maybe like nine months after I finished. No, no, not nine months. Six months after I graduated. Not graduated, but when I finished high school. I actually couldn't graduate high school because here's the kicker. My grade 11 French, I couldn't pass it. <laughs> oh, man. You know, huh. the one language I was trying to run away from, and when I needed it the most, I still can't get it. How many times you took it? Um, the thing is, I failed grade 10 French, and then the summer school of grade 10, I had this uh, really cool teacher. Um, I don't know if I should say his name, but anyways. Yeah, say his name. He's a cool teacher. Uh, Mr. Beanie. Mm -hmm. And Mr. Beanie was really cool. Like, I... So back then, you can't get a 57, 58, or 59. It's either a 56 or a 60. 60 is a pass, and 56 is a fail. But the, it's the teacher's choice whether they want to pass you or not, depending on your potential. So I believe I got a 58 in summer school, and Mr. Beanie said, you know what? I'll let you pass, but you got to promise me you're going to try a little bit harder. And I said, yeah, yeah, of course, Mr. Beanie. Yeah, yeah, just give me the pass. And then by the grace of God, he was my grade 11 teacher. <laughs> oh, my God. When I Guess saw him, back, he bitch. saw me. Oh, man. And you know what? In the, the first, because um, there's two semesters, right? The first semester, I tried. I really tried. I went to his class every day. And then it's just, you know, when I think, the quizzes I should do better and I did horrible and I tried, I just lost confidence in myself. Hmm. So in second semester, I started skipping his class and then he caught me a few times and without forcing me to come to class, he just looks at me and he says, Oh, Hey Johnny, I hope you're doing well. And then he walks right back into his own class. And I think he was doing it to, like purposely just to see if I was skipping his class. Hmm. And he caught me more than once. Now that I failed his class again, I think this time I got a 57. He's like, he just gave me a 56. He's like, no, I'm not going to pass you this time because you, you didn't keep you your promise. You let me down, Holmes. That's it. Yeah. And you know what? I was so angry with him at that time. And I didn't yell at him or anything like that. But I was like, man... I have, like, you need 54 credits, I believe, to pass high school back then, plus certain credentials. I had 76 credits. I had all these, like, fancy courses that I did, uh, but French was the only thing keeping me down. Hmm. So I tried to explain that to Mr. Beanie. Like, I just need French, and then I'm done. I'm done high school. Hmm. I can go to, you know, Egypt, which is college. Mm -hmm. And he's like, well... I don't want to give it to you and you'll thank me one day. And the reason why he didn't want to give me that pass is because he's trying to teach me a lesson. And that lesson, it's quite simple. If you're given things in life, you will never ever appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Right. Just like when, if someone buys you a brand new Mercedes Benz, you're not going to appreciate it because you got it for free. Mm -hmm. But if you worked hard, your uh, sweat, tears, and, um, you know, your, all of your being went into buying that vehicle, you're
you're going to love that car. You're going to store it. You're going to detail it every week, right? You're going to put, you know, accessories on this thing. It's because mm-hmm. it's, it's your baby, right? Mm-hmm. So Mr. Beanie, like, you know, all these years, I still remember him because that was a valuable lesson that he taught me. It is. It is. But you know what? Fuck you, Mr. Beanie, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so you couldn't graduate high school. What did you do then? I went to adult ed for a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, for, yeah, I think for a year. And I did I did some advanced uh, sciences and math uh, mathematical courses. Mm-hmm. And I also took French and, was it chemistry? I can't remember. There was a fourth subject that I also took. Mm-hmm. Um, The math and physics, I passed with flying colors because uh, I was always good in those two subjects. Mm. Um, I passed the the last class too, but the French, I still couldn't pass it, <laughs> right? And no more Mr. Beanie. I got a, I got a different teacher, mm. uh, this lady teacher, but same thing. Uh, I, I would try. I would really try. And I guess I'm one of those students where – I've got so used to getting good grades, like, you know, not amazing grades, but, you know, decent grades mm-hmm. that all of a sudden when I get a test paper and it says, like, you failed, mm-hmm. I would be like, that's like an insult. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a spit on the wound or something. Wow. And I started skipping her class too. Mm-hmm. And I was like, and I failed French again. <laughs> right? So I was like, yeah, no French. more. I'm not going to take this anymore. Like, But then I still applied for um, CGEPs back then because I was like, you know what? Let me try. Let me try to go in as a mature student, see if they'll take me in that way. Mm-hmm. But um, the thing is the school board has your, um, has your actual address, mm-hmm. but the address where my parents resided in. So I was like, you know what? I'll let my brother know that – I applied this way. If he gets the letter, he'll let me know. And um, now that my aunt had taken me in, my my parents are forced to interact with me. Mm. Or I should say I was forced to interact with them. And, um, you know, one of the CGEPs actually sent me a letter saying, Uh, come, go ahead. Like, we'll we'll take you in as a mature student. However, there's this entry um, entry exam that you have to pass, and if you pass, then you're in. We'll tell you the start date or you know the orientation and all that stuff. And um, I passed that, and then I was waiting for the acceptance letter, and then I never got it. And I was like, in my head, I'm thinking, I'm I'm pretty sure I passed. So I was, um, I gave up. I gave up in with the province Quebec because of the schooling because I didn't want to be the kid that, you know, went to the streets and then, you know, you know, lives by the streets. I wanted to progress from there, That's blossom awesome. into something else, uh, which is continue my education because mm-hmm. I knew how important education was. Um Hence why I never dropped out of high school and I stayed at it. So um, 
there's this girl that I um, actually there's this family, this family friend that I uh, resided with in Cornwall when I lived with them. Oh, okay. So they Is had it two the family kids. friend that took care of you when you were young? That's right. Okay. That's right. So they had two kids. One, their daughter, which same age as me, and their son, who was a year younger than us. And I still was in contact with both of them, even afterwards. So the girl told me, why don't you come back to Cornwall? and try your schooling over here. And um, I said, that's, oh my God, why didn't I think of that? But I didn't know what the process was. So um, she told her mom and her mom says, yeah, 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 he can come stay with us. So I stayed with them for, um, I think it was a month or two months. And, you know, I went into uh, the local high school and seeing if I could transfer my high school credits in, in Quebec and mm-hmm. bring them into Ontario mm-hmm. and how that would work. Because um, without a high school uh, diploma, I couldn't go to college here. Mm-hmm. Here to be applied as a mature student in Ontario, I think you have to be 21 before you can apply. Oh, okay. And, and I was, I was only 18 at the time. So I said, you know what? Um, let me try that. Let me go to high school and see if I can pass it uh, in, in that way. And, uh, once I got accepted in their high school, it was time for me to say bye-bye to Quebec and then move into Ontario. During this transition, my brother said, Hey, if you're going to go back to school, I got some stuff that you can pick up. Come pick it up while I'm away. Mm -hmm. He was off to school. And it was just like notebooks, pencils, some stuff that he wanted me to just to have. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went, I went over and I believe my, my stepdad was home. But I think uh, he was sleeping upstairs because he had a night shift or something. And I also found like food in the fridge. I was like, you know what? I'm going to definitely eat before I get out of here. So grab something, put it in my face real quick. Mm-hmm. And this wrapping that I had, I threw in the garbage. And it's funny because it's one of those garbage where you put your foot underneath and then the mm-hmm. lid uh, opens up. And I saw something in the garbage with my name on it. It says Johnny Andrew, but it's all ripped up. And I was like, what the hell is this? So I go to pick it up and it says uh, on the top, it's like John Abbott, uh, the Egypt, the college mm-hmm. with my name. And I was like, wait, let me get the rest of this paper. So I this, you know, first time I'm digging through garbage to look for something. Didn't even do that when I was in the streets looking for food. And I'm digging up and I'm finding these pieces of paper and I'm putting it together. And it's basically my my acceptance letter saying that wow. you got accepted to go. But I already made plans to go to Cornwall. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to pretend I didn't see this and shipped over to Ontario. Okay. So when you got to Ontario, you went to high school and then you got into college? Uh, that's right. Yeah. Okay. You told me you end up in Toronto. How did that happen? And then you mentioned to me too, you tried to did civil engineering because you wanted to impress a girl. Is this the girl that you lived with or someone else? No, this is a different girl. Okay. Um, You know, the girl that I lived with, Mm. it's actually a very good friend of hers. Okay. Right. So she, and I know this girl back then as well. 
mm-hmm. um, because I always see them together. So this girl, she was just like, you know, I'll show you around Toronto. I'll show you where the bank is, the school is, mm-hmm. whatever you need. You just let me know and I'll help you out. Mm-hmm. And she was just doing it to be, you know, um, a person from our culture, from our yeah. community, just helping out. Mm-hmm. And I totally misread the whole thing. And I was like, man, maybe this girl, maybe this girl kind of likes me. I'm, I'm starting to dig her, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, I told her that I, I liked her and I had feelings for her. Mm-hmm. And she's like, well, go to school first. Let's see how you do. And <laughs> she kind of motivated me from behind the scenes. Sure, now, yeah. the way I was going to school now, it was different. Um because there's a couple of years that went by that we kind of skipped, but basically I was just working in between and um, I just waited to become an, a mature student so I can apply and go to college. Mm-hmm. So I waited till I was 21 before that happened. And I got accepted to three different colleges, but I chose this particular one. And, um, you know, the first year they took me in, in the course called general arts and science, a program that, the school can assess where you are just to give you credits kind of give you some credits and see where you are so they can put you in something. If you want to further your education Mm -hmm. within the first semester, they already told me, you know what, you want to do something else, you can do it. So I spoke to a guidance counselor, told them, you know, I want to get into some sort of engineering. Um, So I applied for that and well, not applied. I got into that, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I, I was telling this girl about it. Yeah, and during boy. this time, we're seeing each other, and she's like, "Okay, if you're, you know, what whatever." Are you, seeing? you guys are dating, or yeah, we were, yeah, we were seeing each other. We were dating, right? Okay. Well, um, wait, is it you're dating, and she's like, she's not dating you? Okay, <laughs> maybe it's that <laughs> <laughs> because she would, because she knows I had nobody here. Mm-hmm. I was by myself. Mm-hmm. So I would like trick her. I would tell her, listen, if you don't come and meet me tonight, I didn't eat all day. I'm going to starve to death. And she's like, ah, okay, I'll meet you after work. So she would meet me. We would go to a restaurant and we would eat. And um, that's how I forced her to hang out with me. Well, eventually terrible. she started to have feelings for me. Mm-hmm. And then um, that relationship only lasted, I think, a maximum nine months. And it's only because her mom found out. And, you know, her mom knows that I don't have parents and stuff. And she's like, no, this can't happen. Right? And, I mean, I don't I don't blame her. She, she just wants the best for her daughter, right? Sure, yeah, of course. And being the person that I was, like, I have nothing to show for. So... But I said this stupid thing. I'm like, you know what? One day, I'm going to be here somebody. And then I'll come back. Mm-hmm. And then, um, yeah. Did you pass civil engineering? Did you finish it? <laughs> I did about a year and a half. And I was like, what am I doing? I don't even like like this course. But the real reason I quit is because um, that girl was no longer in the picture because she met someone. At that time, bastard. And um, actually, she met someone a month after we broke up. <laughs> but I, I stuck with the program for at least a year and a half, just to see, you know, what I could do. Mm-hmm. And um, 
when I knew when it was clear to me that she's never coming back, I just I just dropped out, and because I was accumulating so much in in debt in in the whole student loan mm-hmm. that I was just like you know why collect this debt? I don't even like this course. I'm, I was only doing it for her. Mm-hmm. Like, what's the point? So I moved to where my parents were, which was in Guelph, Ontario. Okay. They took you in? Well, they kind of took me in. I was there for six months. And then for another eight months after that, I was living with uh, a friend of mine in Guelph. Because same problem. Couldn't get along. And um, this time it's my fault. Um, Basically, to make the story shorter, uh, I noticed that my stepfather was abusive with my brother. Hmm. And my mother, uh, oh, at this point, uh, I skipped the part. My mother and my stepfather had a child. So my hmm. steps, well, my half-sister was born. Okay. And me and my sister were 14 years apart. And so she's a little older here. And I realized that they were kind of beating her as well. Hmm. And that's one thing I didn't like. I couldn't, like, I sacrificed myself. So that you don't have to be like, like how you treated me with my brother. But now that my sister is born, you can't just make babies and then treat them the whatever way you want to treat them. You got to treat them with like your life is finished. Their life comes first. Yeah. So treat them with the utmost care. So, so I turned the, the street, uh, basically the street mind on just to sh- put some fear into my parents. Basically, that was the first time I was able to fight my stepfather back and win physically. Because hmm. all the other times, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> first time I beat him, right? And then, um, you know, my mother called the cops on me hmm. and put a restraining order that I can't be with within 500 meters uh, near them. Hmm. But my plan worked because. After that day, my brother never got beaten. My sister never got touched. That's awesome. That's nice of you. So, obviously, you got kicked out of the house again. Did mm-hmm. you stay in Toronto or did you move back to Cornwall? Well, my goal was at this, at that point was to pay off my student loans and just figure out what to do. Mm-hmm. So, I was working at... Uh, at a full serve gas station at the time. And um, from there, I met the one of the three owners of a Mr. Loop shop. And he asked me to come and work for him. And that's when I started getting into, um, into cars. Mm. So I went and worked for Mr. Loop. I really enjoyed it. Um, at this, and then at that point, you know, I was talking to some of the other guys that were working with me and they said uh, you know if you really like this why don't you go into automotive and become a mechanic mm. and I said uh, okay well I do love working on cars and I've always liked cars since I was a kid mm-hmm. so why not and uh, so I applied and um, when I finally got accepted I I left Guelph and I went to go uh, live in Toronto again Oh, okay. 
and then you you've, you finished the the school, right? This time I stuck to it and I finished it. <laughs> I passed. I graduated. I felt great. Wow. Um, I went and started working more as a mechanic. But here's the thing: it was the first time I was being a mechanic. So people who went to school, right? They've already had prior experience, and then they go to school to brush up on their knowledge, mm-hmm. so they be- can become licensed. I was doing it the opposite way. So even I and I would tell people, "Oh yeah, I'm done school," and they're like, "You're done school, and you still don't know how to do brakes properly, <laughs> right?" So I made oh my god, so many mistakes when I first started this career. I hope not brakes. You know everything. Brakes too. The, you don't want the customer getting into an accident because of you. Oh my God! This customer that I remember almost did. <laughs> They came to my shop just to get tires done, and um, you know I noticed that the front brakes were low. So I said, you know, and my and the boss, the owner, that day he had a doctor's appointment, so he was gone, right? So he kind of had me and the other apprentice kind of look after the shop. So I went and I upsold her the front brakes, right? You son of a bitch. Yeah. I'm like, well, listen, you, I can show you. You don't have any brakes left. Uh, the proper thing to do is, you know, replace the pads and the rotor. So she's like, okay. And then I started, uh, I worked away at it. So I guess when I pushed back the caliper, I might have done it um, with with too much force, and the master brake cylinder uh, oh started to leak out. <laughs> so, and the thing is, you're supposed to do like a check after the test. And I, when I did the check, I realized something was not right. But I'm like, huh? She probably just needs to apply a little bit more brake before she goes. Should be okay. Should be okay. That's the last time I used the word "should" in my career. Mm. She got in the car. She was headed out, and at one point, somewhere at an intersection, the lights turned red. So she went to go hit the brake, and she couldn't brake. <laughs> I guess she put the car in neutral and put the emergency brake on the the handbrake, mm-hmm. and that's how she came to a stop. She called in roadside assistance. We got the bill about a week later. Oh my god! How, what the fix was? It was like a twelve hundred dollar bill, and my owner, you know, ripped me a new one basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, in every automotive business, between January to March, it's kind of slow, and the entire season comes up and gets busy again. So usually that's the time when some people get laid off or whatever, and he laid me off. And I was the I was his um, well I thought I was his top guy, right? Yeah, top guy almost killed a woman. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> right? So, you know, I um, I started doing other things. Oh, remember those garbage compactors I used to sleep next to? Yeah, I worked for a company that cleans those compactors. <laughs> So every time I look at a compactor, I always look around the compactor to make just sure. Just in case there's someone there. Not just if someone's there, but if someone left their belongings there, because oh. only I know, right? That's mm-hmm. a perfect sleeping method. Um, 
you know, it, that place kept you a little bit warmer than outside in the winter, right? Mm -hmm. So, no, no, no. I always looked around, always made sure. And I always was reminded of my life back then. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the only job that I did where I got paid the highest on a paycheck. My ego was so big. It, it's only so much before God said, you know what? Your head is too big. I'm going to make you quit this job. What did he do? I was temporarily laid off. <laughs> and then after that, that's when you end up doing what you do now? Well, yeah. Then I went back to the automotive because I was thinking maybe I should just quit automotive and just do this. Mm -hmm. Get paid more money. Right? <laughs> uh, you know, it's just short-term gains. Uh, I wasn't thinking about the long-term. So I went back to the dealership lifestyle um, and, you know, started start doing more sorry not dealership lifestyle the automotive lifestyle mm -hmm. my first dealership lifestyle actually happened um i think a year after that so now i brushed up on my automotive skills i can do brakes a lot better right? <laughs> and uh there's a couple of other things that i knew how to do but i stayed very humble to my job mm. because the job that i did with the garbage compactor where i was cleaning it I've learned that every time where I thought, um, you know, too highly of myself, somehow karma, the universe would always strike me down and put me in my place. Mm -hmm. And it forced me to stay humble after that. So I got this opportunity at a dealership. It was a Volkswagen dealership. And um, the HR rep was there to introduced me to the fixed operations manager and the fixed operations manager. I don't know if he was, if the ad was old or, or if he was pulling my leg, but this is basically what he told me that mechanic posting that you saw online, that job got filled up. I don't have that spot anymore, but I do have a spot as a car wash jockey. If you wanted to do that, because the whole time when he was talking to me about the interview process, and I told him, you know, I'm just, I'm a hardworking guy, mm -hmm. blah, 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 blah. He wanted to see if I'm just talk or if I actually meant everything that I said. Hmm. So when he told me uh, that position was uh, no longer uh, vacant and I, there was this car wash position, mm -hmm. I basically looked him straight in the eyes and told him, if that's how I'm going to have to get into the dealership, fine. I'll do it. Wow. And That's he's like, amazing. okay, uh, you can start Monday. And following Monday, got my safety shoes, everything. And I started cleaning cars. Went from being a mechanic to cleaning cars. Not that, and here's the thing. The reason why I was able to do it is because I didn't see it as a downgrade. To me, it was just like, it's a job. I'm, I'm finally in, in a dealership. Whatever I do, I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. Um, oh, wait, wait. There's one more thing that I've missed. Right before the dealership, I got into an accident, um, hmm. car accident. I was walking down the street and this lady hits me on the side of my, on the side here. The woman that you did the brakes? <laughs> Maybe. No, 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 it wasn't her because I, I, I recognize both, both of these ladies. She was actually, um, she was zoned out. I don't know where her head was. 
she did this left turn and she kept looking that way and her mind was somewhere else and then when she finally looked in front of her windshield oh. she finds me slams <laughs> the brake and then go flying oh shit anyways i'm i'm going to skip all that nine months of depression because uh, I couldn't walk for nine months. Ooh. Bedridden for that entire time. Um, but nine months later, started going to rehab, started walking again, got back in the trade and, um, you know, went and worked for private garages for a couple of months. And I was like, nope, I screw this. I got to get through a dealership. So that's where my dealership, like I need to get into a dealership. Why did you think getting into the dealership was the key for your success? Um, I, I was kind of uh, different from everybody. So every private shop that I worked for, I got this feeling where they always kept bashing away at the dealership people. Oh, the dealership will, you know, they charge customers an arm and a leg to do the same job that we can do, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And it was just a lot of hate towards a dealership. But every time I saw a dealership, I saw something else. I saw an opportunity to grow. That's awesome, man. And from a uh, car wash jockey, as you said, now a manager. That's right. Um, I put in... Um, see, uh, when, you, when you ask someone how long they did their job, I hear a lot of people saying, you know, I, I've been working here for 16 years or 10 years, or five years, or 30 years. Mm -hmm. But I think the question that I, that when I ask, and why it's different from other people is, is how long did you evolve in that, in that job, in that career? And, you know, every year I'm always evolving. And my competition is who I was last year. I want to mm. be better than last year. Mm -hmm. And that's what made me become you know, better and better after each year. Um, my first service manager position was for this really, really big automotive company uh, called Delari Group, which mm. amazing company to work for. And I was the youngest service manager that they hired. Wow. Um, and, you know, at first there was a lot of doubts. Can this guy do it? <laughs> I had doubts in myself. Can I do this? <laughs> right? And the GM who hired me and gave me that spot, uh, David Lopez is his name. Amazing mentor, like absolutely amazing. He, when I when I applied to work for him, I applied to work as a senior uh, service advisor. Mm -hmm. You know, a service advisor with skills and who ha comes with mechanical experience as well. And then he basically on my, I think it was my second interview with him. He's like. I don't see you as an advisor. I think you're better suited as a service manager. And I was like, really? Me? I don't think so. Like, <laughs> are you on drugs? <laughs> like, are you okay? And, uh, you know, I could joke with him and, you know, we knew when to be serious and when we could joke around. Mm -hmm. And that's the, that's the amazing thing about him. When he's joking around, he sounds like he's my age. And but then when he's serious about something, like, He's got so many years ahead of him in knowledge, and he never made me feel small. And, you know, I think he loved teaching more than telling people what to do, mm -hmm. right? Because he wanted everyone to get it. 
right? Wow. Rather than being told what to do. And I learned so much from him. And, you know, the first few months of being a service manager, you know, I didn't hit my forecast. My goals were way off. And he just kept saying to me, you know, just hang in there. You always, always go through this in life, mm -hmm. everything. And you only become successful by not giving up. Because mm -hmm. that's when you actually failed, is when you give up and you walk away. Mm -hmm. So if you stick to it, doesn't matter that you had bad grades or people said bad things about you or discouraging things, just keep coming to work every day. Keep doing it better. If you're trying a tactic and doesn't work, change your tactics, but don't stop coming to work, right? Mm -hmm. Don't stop, you know, doing your goals. And, you know, after seeing my job so, so many days later, uh, I started thinking, coming up with new ideas. And the beautiful thing about David Lopez was he lets me try those ideas. Even if they sound weird or dumb or whatever, <laughs> he never told me that they were dumb. He just like, okay, you seriously think this is going to help the business? And I said, well, I think so. Okay, why? So I would tell him my reason, and he said, okay, try it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I failed, I would go apologize. And he would always tell me, don't apologize for trying something different. Mm. You should never apologize for doing that because you're learning something. And, you know, that's when I really understood the, the concept of learning from your mistake. Like, that's when it really hit me in my head. And I wasn't afraid to take risks anymore. I, at that point, I just, like, I escalated. And I brought uh, this particular store that I was working at, at the, for that OEM brand, I became top, like, number one in mm. Canada. Wow. And I, I did it because of, uh, you know, because of, being consistent every day and not giving up wow. and um, eventually a few years later uh, or sorry a couple of years later I left that job to go work for a bigger store which is the current job that I'm at right now uh, and the guy who's my boss now he used to be um, he used to be the big shot at the Delari companies. So he worked for Delari as well. Hmm. Uh, a lot of the stuff that we use, the programs and stuff that we had back then that I was using came from him. Hmm. So I'm That's learning something. from the master, right? And he's very, very similar to David Lopez. He loves to mentor and coach. Mm -hmm. Like he, he could just tell me what to do, but he doesn't. He mentors me and coaches me. Mm -hmm. The only thing he doesn't allow me to do is take, um, take risks. Like Lopez. the previous GM. Yeah. Because now um, he's taught me to, how do I say it? Uh, to brainstorm with him in a boardroom. And he'll just keep asking me why, 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 why? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, because it's good for the business. Yeah, but why? Uh, you can make more money. I can make more money. Yeah, but why? And he kept going down to, you know, the root of, you know, uh, of the idea that we are both having. 
right? And he's the only one that cracks it down to that kind of level. And then I understood, oh, that's why he's so good. It's because he he makes decisions that you make a fundamental of years of uh, experience that he's had, of um, stuff that failed, that he tried, succeeded with, and then he comes up with a really good idea. Mm-hmm. He takes risks too, but they're calculated risks, right? And when I took risks before, they were just like ideas I had on a whim that made sense in my mind, and then I went with it. Mm-hmm. And he taught me to kind of slow down. That's good that you have ideas, but let's calculate it. Let's find out how we can put this into action and how it would affect us with data that you can use. Mm-hmm. Right? So everything that we use, it has data of our business, and then we put it into um, in a different perspective. So, That's amazing. That's amazing, man. And I would like to continue on, but uh, we're get we're at it. We're there. But before we close down, as you said, Mr. Lopez was your mentor, and I really truly believe that everyone needs a mentor. It's such a big factor to success. Someone that will teach you things that you can't even see. They're like Yoda, you know. Mm-hmm. So. Now, I want to ask you to be the mentor for the listeners. Are there any advice or any anything you can partake to the listeners that will help them succeed and reach their goals? Um, the only thing I can tell them is, you know, if you've been listening to my whole story, you know, I went through the, the darkest corner of this country and survived. And now I don't feel like I'm in the brightest light right now, but I'm every, each day I'm working towards it. So no matter where you are in life, no matter how uh, depressed you may be or how you think life's got you down, the one thing that I hope that you take away from my story is never give up. Because every time you give up, every time you go and you run away to another province or you didn't take your initial instinct, that's when... Uh, that's when you fail. It's when you given up that opportunity. So every, think of everything as an opportunity, and take it. Take the opportunities as they come, because you will gradually appreciate it because you're the only one that's going to work towards it. Uh, it's like that uh, Mercedes Benz analogy that I said. If someone bought you the car, you're not going to appreciate it. But if you bought it with yourself, you appreciate it. Same thing with the actions that you take. If you take the opportunity and you work hard at it. Only you know the steps that you've taken from ground up and only you can succeed in that. No mm. one else can take that away from you. Mm. Wise words from a wise man. Again, Johnny, thank you so much for doing the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, Aaron, again for having me. And, you know, it was my pleasure being able to talk about my stories. I hope it can touch, um, you know, the younger audience of our country. Because the youth is our future, and we need to be able to give them as much information as we can. Being able to mentor them, whether it's physically, virtually, uh, but just to be able to educate them on, on, on whatever the, the older generation has gone through, so they can perfect it and make sure that situations like this don't happen to the next generation. Right? right. But instead, we find ways and uh, to strive together. Mm-hmm. Not as a culture or a community, but as a whole country, as one unit. Beautiful, beautiful. All right. Thank you again, Johnny. I really appreciate it.
Thank you, Aaron. It was a pleasure. Bye. Thank you, Johnny, for coming on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, listeners, for listening. This is Aaron Deliosa for An Immigrant's Life. I'll see you guys later.